It hurts to be excluded. I wonder if you've felt that before. In fact, FOMO, fear of missing out, has become a recognized shorthand for the common pain we experience at even the thought of not being included in groups or activities that we find important. In an article on the American Psychological Association's website, uh, Kirsten Weir says this, As researchers have dug deeper into the roots of rejection, they found surprising evidence that the pain of being excluded is not so different from the pain of physical injury. Rejection also has serious implications for an individual's psychological state and for society in general. Social rejection can influence emotion, cognition, and even physical health. Ostracized people sometimes become aggressive and can turn to violence. In 2003, researchers at Duke University analyzed 15 cases of school shooters and found all but two suffered from social rejection. In Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13, Jesus addresses a church that has been left out. A church that has been excluded from the world in which they live, even by their own sort of religious community. And his words of comfort to them are a powerful source of encouragement for us as well. As following Jesus often means finding ourselves on the outside of social and cultural acceptance. And I think we'll find that is increasingly true as the weeks, months, and years go by. So if you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, we are on the sixth of seven letters, messages that Jesus gives to these uh, local congregations in the province of Asia Minor. There's been a mixed bag of sorts. The health of the church overall is mixed. There's a lot of churches that are struggling mightily to remain faithful and, uh, and true to the word of God. There have been uh, on, uh, uh, harboring false teachers and, and giving, uh, being patient and tolerant with evil and uh, idolatry and immorality in various ways. The church in Philadelphia, to whom Jesus writes in our passage today, is one of only two churches out of the seven that he does not rebuke in any way. There is no correction offered to this church, only a commendation and encouragement. It's a passage that is flowing with and rich with encouragement. That they would be strengthened with the promises of Christ to endure. Let me read for you verses 7 through 13. And we'll unpack these verses together. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. 
Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, as with all of these messages, these letters, Christ comes to the church with a designation of of himself, identifying himself in some way that is relevant to their situation. Uh, It bears unique relevance to the the struggle that they are enduring or the uh, failings of each of these congregations. Again, to Philadelphia, he has no corrections to offer, but he comes to them in a way that is relevant to their need and their situation. Namely, Jesus Christ comes to this church as the righteous gatekeeper. The gatekeeper. He starts by saying the words of the Holy One, the True One. And these are clear markers of His divinity, of His identification with God, with Yahweh. So he identifies himself very clearly as the Holy One of Israel, which is a designation that the people of Israel had given to Yahweh many, many times. And so these are markers of of his divinity and of his righteousness and, and purity and a marker of his authority. The Holy One, the True One, this is the one with the, the power and the right to judge and to control and to guide all of history. And so there's a, a, a marker of his own sovereign divine authority here as the Holy One and the True One. And then he says this of himself, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now that is a reference to, uh, or that, that is a quotation of a prophecy from Isaiah 22, 22, Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And in Isaiah, it's a reference to Eliakim, who God is appointing as the steward of the king's house, the administrator of all the king's possessions and home. And when Eliakim replaced Shebna as the steward, God pronounced this of, of him. He said, I will place on his shoulder, that is on Eliakim, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So that prophecy in Isaiah, speaking of Eliakim, is demonstrating to us the, the role that Eliakim was tasked with. He would be the one to guard that which belonged to the king granting entrance only to those who were authorized to be there, granting access only to those who the king had given permission to have access, and rightly, therefore, keeping out those who had no claim on the king's home or possessions and no right to be there. So that's what this 
statement means about Eliakim in Isaiah 22. And Christ here claims that role, that role of steward or administrator of all the king's things and the king's home. He claims that role for himself as the one who holds forever the key of David, which of course is also a reference to the fact that Jesus is the king who came from David's line, a reference to the the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that someone from David's throne would reign forever, right? That his dynasty would continue. And so here is Christ, the king on David's throne, saying, I have the key of David. I open and no one shuts. I shut and no one opens. Paul Gardner, a commentator, says, Eliakim replaced Shebna as steward of the palace and became the one who controlled entry to the king's household. This is who Jesus is. He alone can give access to God's kingdom and to an inheritance of God's covenant promises. He can also shut people out. What he shuts, no one can open. And so Christ's identity for this socially excluded church, this church that has been found itself on the outside of their own religious community and the outside of the sort of cultural and social uh, norms and powers of the day. His identity is this. I am the one with the ultimate and final authority to open or shut. Only the authorized may enter and no one is able to kick them out. And so Jesus tells them right up front, Don't fear the ones who uh, keep you out because they can't keep you out forever. And they can't keep you out of what really, finally, truly matters. I am the only one with the authority to welcome or to exclude. That is Christ. He is the gatekeeper of the kingdom of God. And again, Jesus has no words of rebuke or correction, only commendation and encouragement. As he said, you reminded them, you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. You kept my word about patient endurance. He said that two separate times about keeping his word. And so instead of the normal pattern and structure where we kind of look at here's the good things and here's the bad things and here's the promise. um, What I want to show you today from these verses is essentially this four messages to a steadfast church. What we find in Philadelphia is a church that is steadfast. That is, they are standing strong, being faithful in the face of pressure and trial and persecution and exclusion. And Jesus has four messages for their encouragement. And again, as he invites all of his churches to listen in, down in verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we listen in, I think these four messages are not uniquely and only for the Philadelphian Christians in the first century. Therefore, us as well. Here's the first message. You are weak in the world, but you have access to the kingdom. You are weak in the world, but you have access to the kingdom. Look at verse 8. First thing he says, again, as he says to all these churches, I know your works. I know He sees all. He knows all. Nothing is hidden from the sight of Jesus. He knows their works. And indeed, what he sees is good. What he sees is faithfulness, right? I know your works. And then he says, behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I have set before you 
an open door. So now he ties in his self-designation right at the beginning of this letter uh, as the one with the key of David. And he applies it directly to them, to this church. He says to them plainly, I have set before you an open door. By my grace, you have gained access, entrance into the kingdom of God. He says, you have but little power, right? Uh, This church is probably culturally insignificant, maybe poor in resources. They don't have a lot of stuff, a lot of money to work with. They're probably small in number, probably not a large congregation. But because of their position in the kingdom, heaven sees something different when it looks upon this congregation. There's a connection that I want you to see of the key of David that's spoken of here and in Isaiah chapter 22 with the keys of the kingdom that Jesus speaks of elsewhere. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, as he's speaking to his disciples, he just asked them, uh, who do people say that I am? And they begin, well, some say that you're you know, Elijah or some other prophet. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And you may remember that Simon Peter gives this great confession. You are the Christ, right? The son of the living God. And it's that confession that Jesus says, I will build my rock. Uh, I will build my church, excuse me, upon this rock, right? He gives Simon a new name. I, I call you Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in verse 19, this is Matthew 16, 19, he says, I will give you, I don't think he means Peter specifically, uniquely, personally only. I think he means the church, right? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. See if this sounds familiar to you. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It sounds a bit like whatever is opened is open. Nobody can shut it. And whatever is shut, nobody can open it. Jesus is the one without authority, right? He's the king. He's the gatekeeper. He's the one who holds that key. And in Matthew 16, 19, he says, I'm giving this to you. The church. He speaks of that again without using the language of keys in Matthew 18, where we have the famous passage about church discipline, where if somebody sins, go to him and tell him his fault. And if you won't repent, then go back to him with two or three. If you won't repent, go tell it to the whole church. And if you won't listen even to the church, let him be to you a tax collector and a Gentile. And it's in that context where he says, again, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And then he adds the detail. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among their midst. And so the key of David that Jesus alone holds, that grants access to the kingdom of God, I think is parallel to, and and, uh, probably just another term for the keys of the kingdom that he has entrusted to his church, even to churches to local congregations. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Jesus explicitly connected this authority to himself as Israel's Messiah. I'm the one with the key. And then he delegates this authority to the church to operate on his behalf. 
It is the church on earth. It is local congregations of God's people on earth that Christ has vested with this heavenly authority to do business, as it were, on behalf of heaven as outposts or embassies of the kingdom of God. So he looks at this church in Philadelphia and he says, you feel small, you feel weak, you feel left out, but listen, you've got the keys of the kingdom in your hands. I have given you authority to do business on account of the kingdom of God. Church, this is who we are. Small, of modest means, not culturally or socially powerful, but authorized by the King of Heaven to carry out His work in the world. To be an embassy of the Kingdom of God. And this reality should infuse our life together as a church with deep meaning, importance, and significance. It should raise our estimation of what Christ is doing and accomplishing in the gathering and discipling of his saints week in and week out. It's not just a meeting that you go to. It's not just a name that you sort of give yourself. This is the work of the kingdom of God being done by his authority through the church. It should instill our witness in the world with newfound strength and courage and persistence. We are ambassadors announcing the coming of a kingdom in which we've been included and we want others to take part as well. You are weak in the world, but you have access to the kingdom. And indeed, you are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. The second message that he has for this church is that you've been mistreated, but you will be vindicated. You've been mistreated, but you will be vindicated. That is, you will be shown to be righteous. In verse 9, he says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this synagogue of Satan group, uh, we saw these guys in chapter 2, verse 9, when Jesus wrote to the church in Smyrna. Again, the other church for whom he had no corrections and only encouragements. And the synagogue of Satan is a term that Jesus applies, clearly a, a pejorative term, a derogatory term that he applies to those who are descendants of Abraham. So these are ethnic Jews who have rejected Jesus as Messiah and thereby are opposing the church. So they are placing themselves in conflict with and opposition to the church of Jesus Christ. And we saw back in, in Smyrna that they were slandering uh, the, the Christians uh, in Smyrna. And that probably entailed that they were actually ratting them out to kind of local governing authorities for not participating in the imperial cult and things of this nature. And so they are Jewish people who have set themselves against the Jewish Messiah and his church. Right? This is clearly not anti-Semitic. It's easy to read something like this and go, wow, is he saying something bad about Jews? Like, are all Jews the synagogue of Satan? Of course not. Jesus was a Jew. 
John himself writes this letter, is a Jew. He's writing probably to a church that includes a decent number of Jewish Christians. All right, And so it's certainly not anti-Semitic. He is saying that these particular descendants of Abraham, by rejecting him as their Messiah, and by opposing those who have received him, have aligned themselves with Satan. So as they oppose the church and as they exclude them from the religious community and as they perhaps even rat them out to the authorities to try to get them in trouble and see them excluded from even the social and economic realities of their, uh, of their day, uh, they are doing the work of Satan. They wouldn't see themselves as doing that, but that's how Jesus sees it, right? This is his designation for them. They're a synagogue of Satan. So... These Philadelphian Christians have been excluded. They've been left out of the synagogue. Clearly, the Jews who were meeting in the synagogue would not allow them to come into uh, the synagogue as they are opposing them. They've regarded them as social and religious outsiders. But Christ promises them here. There's a day coming when the faithful, Christ-honoring members of this church will be vindicated. And it's a very interesting scene that he paints I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will know that I have loved you. This again is language from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 14 speaks of the same kind of idea of those who are opponents of God and his people would one day bow before them. And so Jesus is, is, is borrowing, using that, that prophetic image from Isaiah to say to this excluded, minimized church in Philadelphia, your enemies will one day bow at your feet. At the coming of the Lord, Christ will humble all those who have rejected him. You may remember in Philippians chapter 2, that great passage that speaks of the, the humbling of Christ in the incarnation that he emptied himself of all his glory and took on the form of a servant and even became obedient to the point of death. And then upon his resurrection, it says now God has exalted him, right? He's bestowed upon him the name above every name. And then he says this, that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a day coming. When the glory of Christ, the authority of Christ, the power of Christ will be seen and undeniable. But it'll be too late for some. It'll be too late for those who have rejected him and rebelled against him in this life. They'll see it. They'll bow their knee to his authority. But it'll be too late for their redemption. And in that same way, and perhaps in that same scene, the bowing of the knee is not only to Jesus as Christ and King, but it's in some sense even to the people of Christ. It's to those who have faithfully borne the name of Jesus in this broken world. These enemies of yours, those who have rejected me, will come and bow before you. And they will see that I have loved you. That humbling includes the enemies of Christ's church bowing down before them, publicly acknowledging that the church has been the object of Christ's divine love and pleasure. Christian, you are the one Jesus loves. What a word of comfort and encouragement. It is not the powerful and the elite of this world that Jesus prefers, but he has chosen the humble 
the lowly to set his love upon. And he's excluded the boasters and the proud. Take comfort. Take courage. Jesus Christ loves you. And one day everyone will see it. You've been mistreated, but you will be vindicated. The third message he gives to the steadfast church is this. You have troubles on earth, but you will be preserved by grace. You have troubles on earth, but you will be preserved by grace. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, there's a, there's a play on the word uh, keep here. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. It's, it's the same word, and it's, it, it has the idea of, of preserving, of, of holding fast, right? You have held fast to my word, and therefore I will hold fast to you in the midst of a trial that's coming upon the world. Now, some see in this verse a reference to a, 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 the rapture of the church, Jesus removing the church from the world prior to a period of intensified uh, trouble and persecution and tribulation uh, at the, toward the end of human history, uh, leading up to the return uh, of Jesus. Now, that is, that is an acceptable and orthodox view. And there are many who hold it. Many brothers and sisters who are good, faithful, Bible-loving uh, people who believe that. I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think that he's promising them to, that he's going to remove them from the trial so that they don't have to experience it. I think he's promising them that in the midst of the trial, he will preserve them. He will protect them. He will guard them. This is not a promise that the church will be removed from the hour of trial, but that they'll be protected from it. Now look at the purpose that God has in mind for this trial, right? He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on whom? On the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth. To try those who dwell on the earth. Now that phrase, you could read that and think that just means everybody who lives in the world. But Revelation repeatedly uses this phrase in a more technical way to refer to unbelievers, earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth. You'll find that phrase throughout Revelation. And every time it shows up, if you pay attention to the context, it's talking about the enemies of God. It's talking about those who have rejected Christ. It's talking about the wicked. So those who dwell on the earth is not a designation for everybody who lives here. It is a designation of unbelievers who are outside the community of faith and who have rejected Christ. And so the trial that's coming upon the whole world has the purpose, the primary purpose explicitly stated here, of trying the wicked, of judgment upon the unbelieving world. But in God's providence and God's wisdom, what he intends to serve one purpose for non-believers... He often has a, another purpose, a distinct purpose in that same event for his people, 
for the righteous. And so as this trial comes upon the whole world for the testing of the unbelievers in the world, nevertheless, he intends to purify and sanctify his church through those very same events. So the trials and tribulations that come upon the world are not those that we should expect to be exempt from or removed from. Well, when things get really bad, he'll just pluck us all out of the world and we won't have to worry about it anymore. What we should expect is life is going to be hard. We are going to be hated for the sake of Christ, but he will not leave us or forsake us. And that's what he's promised his people throughout. He said very plainly to, to his disciples in the Gospel of John in that upper room discourse, the very same thing. It's consistent with New Testament teaching throughout all of the letters. There will be persecutions. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We should not expect to be exempt from trial and challenge and hardship and pain that comes into our lives because of our faith in Christ. What we can expect is that he's with us in those trials and he will faithfully preserve us and keep us for himself in the midst of them. You know, Jesus himself promised uh, or prayed in, in John chapter 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so Jesus is essentially promising to the Philadelphian church and all Christians who faithfully keep his word, that God will answer Jesus' prayer in John 17. I'm not praying that you'll be taken out of the world, but that you'll be kept from the evil one. You'll be preserved by God's grace, by God's strength from evil. Friends, hardships will come. Increasingly, I think we'll find, to identify as a follower of Jesus... And to associate with his word and his people will be to invite the chastisement, the hatred, and the rejection of the unbelieving world around us. You can see it beginning even now. I think it's only going to get worse. But Jesus wants to assure your hearts. He will hold you. He will keep you. One of my favorite old hymns, How Firm a Foundation, one of verses says this. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. In the midst of the fires through which we will walk, Christ is purifying his people. Christ is preparing his people for glory. Christ is is preserving us. You have troubles on earth, but you will be preserved by grace. Fourth and final message that he gives to a steadfast church in these verses is this. You've been excluded by the world, but you will be forever included in the heavenly city. You've been excluded by the world, but you will be forever included in the heavenly city. Verse 12, and it's long and filled with words and ideas that we'll look at. The one who conquers, that is the one who perseveres in faith, the one who remains faithful and true to Christ and his gospel. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. 
And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Have you noticed how many times the pronoun my appears in that verse? You'll be a pillar in the temple of my God. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God who comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Christ wants us to get the point that he's a little possessive about his people. You are mine. You belong to me. You are God's people now and forever. For a church that is rejected by the religious community, cast out by the world, excluded from the social and cultural powers of the day, Jesus designates those who conquer with three new markers of identity. Let's look at them one at a time. Three new markers of who you are. Number one, members of God's house. To the one who conquers, you will be members of God's house. You see that where he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. This is security for those who in Philadelphia have never experienced it. And for many in our world today who don't experience any sense of peace and security and safety. He says, you will be a pillar in the temple of my God forever. No one can take you out of it. Never shall he go out of it. Now, Revelation 21 verse 22 tells us plainly that there is no temple in the new earth. God's presence is simply everywhere in the new heavens and the new earth. There's no need for a temple. The glory of God and the Lamb are, are, are universally present. So the participation in God's temple is symbolic. I think of two realities. Number one, we will be in God's presence and no one can remove us. If the temple is literally everywhere in the new heavens and new earth and the presence of God and the Lamb fill the new heavens and the new earth then where can we go that we are not in his presence? We are in his presence wherever we are, and we will always be there. And number two, it's symbolic that we will be God's people. Remember 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 tells us that we as living stones are being built together into a spiritual house for the dwelling of God. And so there's a sense in which in the new heavens and the new earth with his redeemed people... We are participants in the the presence of God in in a special way. And so we'll be in God's presence and no one can remove us. And we will be God's people. We are His. He has marked us as His and we will be together. You don't, you don't just like endure with people in the church today that you're like, okay, I just got to put up with them a little bit until eternity and then I can kind of find my own corner in heaven and like kind of be away from them. That's not the reality. The reality is in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth, we're one. We're together. We love each other. We share in the life of God and the kingdom fully together with all of those who have named Jesus as Lord and whom he has redeemed. You are members of God's house. Number two, you are those sealed with God's name. I will write on him the name of my God. And then uh, down just a little bit later it says, and my own new name. Right? I will write on them. 
the name of my God and my own new name. Now, having the name of God written on us is a symbol of permanence and belonging. There can be no doubt we will belong to him forever. This is like Buzz Lightyear looking at his foot and finding the name Andy imprinted on it. That's who I belong to. And that infused him with the strength and the courage to sort of fight another day, right? And to escape from Sid's house. It was that identity marker. It was remembering, I belong to Andy. And it's for Christians today to remember we are Christ's. We are God's people. And he will never let us go. Tom Schreiner says, Christians belong to God and are secure in the care of the one who has put his name on them. For God is jealous above all else for the glory and honor of his name. So if he puts his name on you, you can know for certain he will uphold you. He will keep you because his own name is on the line. His own glory is at stake. You are sealed with God's name. And then the third and final identity marker is that we will be citizens of God's city. Members of God's house, sealed with God's name, citizens of God's city. As he said, I will write on him the name of my God. Then he said, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. John's vision of the eternal kingdom climaxes in Revelation 21 and 22 with a description of the new heaven and the new earth as it's presented to him in this vision. And at the center of that glorious place is the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. I want you to listen to a part of the description that he gives in Revelation chapter 21. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Did you notice? The gates in the New Jerusalem are never shut. The gates are not shut by day and there isn't any night. So the gates in the city are always open. How did Jesus introduce himself to the church at Philadelphia? As the one who opens and no one will shut. What promise did he give them? How did he assure them at the beginning of the letter? Back in verse 8. I have set before you an open door. Which no one is able to shut. It's clear, isn't it? No matter how much you're excluded from this world. You have been granted entrance to the heavenly Jerusalem. You will never have to leave. And nothing will ever harm you there. What an incredible promise. You are citizens of God's city. You may have noticed that I skipped over verse 11. Kind of went straight from 10 to 12. It's not because it's unworthy of our consideration. It's because I want it to be the last thing that you hear today. I want to conclude with the hope and exhortation of this verse. Look at verse 11. 
I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The book of Revelation is charged throughout with the certain reality of Jesus' return to the earth in power and glory, to call his people to himself, to judge the wicked, and to fully establish his eternal kingdom. Now, our definition of soon may differ a little bit from that of Jesus, for whom a day is as a thousand years, we're told in one place. But let this promise fill your heart with faith in these hard days. Jesus is coming. He will not leave us on our own. He will not abandon us to our enemies. He will come for us. And until that day, hold on. He said this to a couple of churches already, hasn't he? And here he says it to them again. Hold fast what you have. The crown of life awaits those who faithfully cling to the name of Jesus Christ, who persist in believing the gospel, and who refuse to renounce or deny the Lord no matter what trials and pressures come into our lives. And don't forget that the painful, often unjust realities of life in this broken world will one day give way to and be overshadowed by the joyful, harmonious, righteous life of heaven. And no one will ever kick you out. Let's pray.